Blog Talk Radio. Hi, and welcome to The Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. Jay Miles has worked in TV, video, film, and commercial production for 20 years, including shows for NBC, ABC, and Fox. He's contributed to such magazines and websites as Film Threat, Movie Maker, Adorama.com, and TechSmith.com. Miles continues to consult and produce for independent clients. His first book, Conquering YouTube, combines the professionals and practical tips that he has used on major shoots with the approaches that he employs to help numerous beginners reach for the stars with their own successful projects. And Carol, Jay's book is published by your publisher, MWP.com, Michael Weesey, right? Absolutely. And we were both really fortunate to work with one of the top publishers in the film industry, right, Jay? It's absolutely true. Absolutely true. I had one of his titles in graduate school in my film studies courses there. And that's where the love affair with MWP began for me. Yes. he's. If there's anything you need in the film industry, any product to learn about any area, you can always find it in his MWP.com website. Now, your book is a compendium of information, Jay. I wish I had it when I bought my Canon video camera because <laughs> the book that came with my camera was absolutely impossible to understand. I, I think I can honestly say that I learned more from your book in 30 minutes than I did with the Canon instruction book after hours of reading it. So uh, the, you have given us a great gift with this book. Well, you're... You're way too kind, and I and I'm I'm honored and humbled, and I'm I'm thrilled to be here with you and and all of your listeners, and hopefully some new listeners out there. Um, it, it's an exciting time to be making video, and I think that there's um, there's a ton of information out there, and some of it's really really like super technical and super advanced, right? And some of it, you're right, is just kind of like the little sort of handout, right, that comes with. Uh, a device if you buy a camera for instance and you're sort of meant to wade through all the technical information and become you know completely comfortable and I was kind of trying to find that sort of happy place between understanding some of the raw technical stuff but in an artistic and and sort of meaningful way a way that uh the, you take the camera out of the box plug it in charge it up and you can do something fun and exciting and memorable right well, we're going to go through your book today, and I love the way that you divided it into sections. And uh, so we're going to call, we're going to work just through your book and start with section one, Rules of the Road, and specifically uh, the automation nation. I love that. The challenges of mass <laughs> manual camera settings versus relying on automatic settings. So let's start there. I, I'd love to tell you a little bit about where I kind of came up with that, and, and I teach video uh, on a pretty regular basis. In fact, I have to give a 
have to give a shout out to my period six video one students who uh, at my school today for cleaning up all their stuff and putting the equipment away correctly while I was here talking with you guys. Um, in 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 looking at camera functions and and the ways I've done it both on professional shoots and in my classroom with quote unquote beginners or folks who are new to video. Um, I think a lot of times there's this kind of assumption that you just sort of pick it up and point it in a direction and start shooting. And, it, you know, listen, if you're on your back porch one day and a snowmobile race all of a sudden comes through your backyard, you know, by all means, just start rolling video and, and, and hope you get good shots. But I think when you start looking at more specific choices, the less you rely on the automatic settings and the more you can make specific choices about the focus, the exposure, which is the overall brightness of the image, even the shutter speed on, on more advanced cameras, those kinds of settings can lead you to some deeper, sort of more emotionally meaningful images, especially if you're talking about original films or like an original um, episodic kind of series that you might be releasing via a website like YouTube. Okay. So you, in the book, one of the first things you do is say, learn how to do an automatic uh, setting and then turn it off and then start practicing <laughs> and learn yeah, I'm a, I'm a, camera. Yeah, I'm, I actually have like this, I have this box that I talk about, like back in the, in the ancient days of mini-DV technology, sort of pre-video cards, where I bought a camera when I was living in L.A., and I, and I literally just roamed around for days and days and days doing dummy footage, you know, at different times of day and in different situations, indoor, outdoor, shooting really, really small things on a desk and shooting, you know, from the top of the Hollywood Hills back down over the town, just forcing myself to get comfortable with the whole range of possible ways I could utilize the settings. And that's kind of what I'm – that's why it's chapter one, tip number one is, hey, get get out of your comfort zone a little bit. It doesn't matter if it's in your living room or if you're on a – you know, like if you're on a vacation, you take it with – you know, mess around with it in the car or when you stop for to stretch your legs. But it, get – you know, don't wait until you're shooting that pivotal scene in your in your short film or your or your feature film. Don't wait until that moment where you've got – you know, the really important interview that you're doing for your documentary with the mayor of your town, for example, to figure out that, oh, you don't actually know what this button does. You know, figure those things out. It's kind of like an instrument. Like, if you're going to play music, you need to sit in your living room or your dorm or, you know, your back porch and just run through the scales over and over again until you can hit them without even thinking about it. It's the same kind of approach. So you really know your camera. All right, well, then let's go to your section two, which is patterns of pain and how patterns to avoid pain. <laughs> clashing or awkward <laughs> foreground and background colors and pattern stripes. And let's go cover that. I think, um, I think if you're somebody watches as much video as I do, you've probably seen at some point a shot of, of somebody being interviewed maybe on the local news or, or you're seeing some footage from some older video where they have like somebody's got like a very tight pinstripe suit on or like a seersucker jacket or something with vertical stripes or, or some sort of heavy pattern. And it almost does this weird optical thing where it's kind of moving around and it looks all sloppy and slushy and strange. So that's, that's called a moray, which is kind of like a weird optical effect, right? And, and one of the things I want to encourage people to do in this section of the book is just take that extra second to look at 
what, especially for things like interviews, but even in dramatic scenes, right, with your, with your working with actors, is look at the patterns of the fabrics they're wearing. Look at what kind of background um, colors might be happening or patterns. If it's indoor or outdoor, it doesn't really matter. If, you're, if you've just got somebody who shows up wearing a beautiful green jacket, but you're shooting outside of a row of green trees, you don't want that accidental sort of blend to happen, right, between their, the fabric that they have on and whatever elements are in your shot, either in the background or if it's a set of curtains that they're standing in front of. So, you know, when I'm doing interviews, I almost always try to get my guests, my on-camera subjects, to bring something that's all black, uh, something that's like a blue or a gray, without a lot of patterns in it, and, and bring two or three options, even if it's like a jacket or, a, or a, like a hoodie or something they could slip on. I like to avoid logos and things like that, um, complex things like uh, polka dots and stuff that, if it's really, especially if it's really fine, like really teeny patterns, they just, they just again, patterns of pain. They just lead you into places where your image is actually not as clean and professional as it might look otherwise. And you also get, you know, you give yourself more options if you're shooting against a plain white wall, let's say, in an office space somewhere, and that person happens to be wearing a tan you know, or a light-colored, you know, outfit, they're just going to look like this weird floating head, right? Because, uh, you know, you might have exactly. to in a little exactly. bit in ways that, that are actually not very appealing. <laughs> no, it's not. I did a lot of shows on cable, and I ended up with a wardrobe of solid-color jackets and yep. solid-color blouses. And sometimes I could wear a blouse with a, a little bit of color or flowers in it, but sure. that was only a couple of inches showed. And what happens is people really focus on you, your content, and your information more than getting caught up in uh, distracting uh, visuals. Yeah, and the worst worst case scenario is like a green screen situation. I I think there was something out of Boston, I think just this week, that I saw on social media was one of these kind of local news blooper moments where the, the lady was wearing like the perfect shade of green or the least perfect shade of green maybe and the weather the, the the weather forecaster brought her over she walks in front of the weather map and she literally was just a head and floating arms it was like a sleeveless <laughs> you know skirt it was it was like exactly the wrong color green so it's just that moment of like oh geez you know uh i i'm shooting today at uh at this recreation center and i'm interviewing this lifeguard who saved this uh, this dog's life that jumped into the pool. Well, you get down there, and the lifeguard's wearing blue, and the inside of the building's blue, and all the, you know, you you just don't want that option of like, right? And then all of a sudden, you've just got a floating head uh, in yeah. your in your shot. Well, let's talk about tip twenty uh, under in your book under umbrella dilemma, which is avoiding awkward elements in a shot that line up in weird ways and making it look like poles are coming out of people's heads. I hate that when I see it on camera. I, I, you know, I had a friend, a dear friend of mine, who did some video for me, um, some interviews uh, in L.A. when I right when I came back to the East Coast, and I had a gig, and I was and I wasn't able to. Uh, the budget couldn't afford to fly me back, so he did the interviews for me um, and sent me back the footage. So and so it was like one and done, right? So I was locked into these interviews, and he was very gracious to help me out and, and everything else, but he shot them at like 
an outdoor coffee place, and the and it was you know he did a fine job, and the audio was great, and the exposure was perfect, and it was a bright sunny day, except the kid who he interviewed, the the man who he interviewed was sitting like right in front of one of the awning umbrella looking things, and the whole yes. interview just looked like he was growing this mushroomy umbrella thing out of the back of his head, and. You know, those are those are to me those are simple things. And as soon as you start to train your eye a little mm-hmm. bit to watch out for the light pole, or the stop sign, you know, or the um, the 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 element in the background that unnaturally sort of is launching out of your subject's head, <laughs> it doesn't matter if it's a swing set or a telephone pole or whatever, uh, that's sort of awkwardly placed. Um, and you can kind of train yourself to maybe just rotate your tripod left or right a little bit to sort of offset the way it's accidentally lining up. Just one of those other simple things that that you can avoid that brings your sort of overall quality up a little bit, whether it's documentary or an interview you're doing for like a news-style broadcast, any of those kind of situations. Right, Jay, and I think that cameramen should always, or camera people, sorry, should always save lots of time to, uh, to when they're going to do an interview for the setup, if they, particularly if they don't know where they're going to shoot, if they're going in someone's house, because they're going to have to either rearrange things in the house or move their subject to an area where they can get the best light and uh, the best setting. And they have to be strong enough to do that. Not to When the subject says, this is where I, I want you to shoot me, you have to be strong enough to say, no, that's not going to work. That won't be your best uh, location. Yeah, a similar one is, uh, is I see a lot of, uh, you know, everyone shoots very quickly now, right? The style and the sort of aesthetic of a lot of viewers now is just sort of like, yeah, this is just my living room, and I'm just going to, I'm going to blog about the vlog about this, and I'm talking about that or whatever. And I see a lot of stuff where people are shooting like, you know, looking straight into the camera, but they're they're sitting in front of like the big bay window in their living room, so they're just yeah. backlit. You know what I mean? And and it's sort of fuzzy, and you know, it's like take that extra second and like, yeah, you can use the light that's coming in through that window, but spin around to the side so it's not sort of accidentally silhouetting yourself. You know what I mean? Unless you're kind of going for that creepy kind of look, I guess you could you could you know, shoot it that way. But it's those little things I think that. Uh, a lot of folks who are trying to develop a channel on, on, a, on a site like a YouTube and sort of build their, build their followers um, need to just look at uh, those little concerns. Well, this is what the book is all about, isn't it? Conquering YouTube. So you're teaching people how to shoot, just giving them tip after tip and total information on learning the camera using all of the tips that you have in your book so that they look very professional when, in fact, they may have only had the camera for six months, right? That's exactly the angle that I came at when I pitched the book to the folks at Michael Weesey. And, and fortunately, you know, that what's so great about them is they saw that need for a certain level of filmmaker uh, or videographer. And... I sort of synthesized it as best I could with the experiences I've had at the high school and college level teaching this stuff and getting somebody who might be unfamiliar with technology or unfamiliar with cameras uh, or coming at it as a 13, 14, 15-year-old even in my in my high school classes, that if you just take it one step at a time and give yourself time to fail, I mean, you're going to get it wrong, right? You're going to get it wrong. You're going to make some sort of mistake. You're going to accidentally kick the tripod in the middle of a shot. You're, 
you, I mean, I have a whole drawer full of tapes from that mini DD period of mine, full of stuff I would never show anybody because it was me just learning. You know what I mean? And it was, right. I went to the beach, I just shot the sunset and the waves and people playing volleyball, and I went to different, you know, parts around town and tried to shoot a pull focus move or a slow tilt down until I got it right. And so, you know, I always encourage, especially now that, media cards, you're not really paying for film anymore or tape even. So it's so cheap to record once you have the camera that, you know, you can just delete the junk later. I always encourage people to look at it, look at your mistakes and say, ooh, was that, what was what was going on there? Why was this shot kind of, why was it so wonky? You know, was my tripod giving me a problem or was there, was I doing it too fast? You know, so it's, it, again, it's like, I equate it to music a lot. You know, good musicians record a lot more rehearsals and a lot more performances than they release to the public. <laughs> and, they, and they study them when they're in the car stuck in traffic, right? They listen back to the performance and say, oh, I can do that better and measure 43. Yes. Uh, and it's the same kind of, same kind of approach. Exactly. Uh, okay, let's go to one of my favorite subjects is lighting, <laughs> you know, and that's the most important person on the set, the camera person and the gaffer. Those are, to a woman, your greatest friends or enemies because they can take, they can add 10 years or take off 20, whichever you want. It can be done. Right, right. You and say, let's go. I, you know what else I, yeah. I think is uh, for for newcomers, for for people interested in getting into video or film uh, or television, um, it's one of those big mysteries. Like, you know, there's weird terms for everything, and there's, you know, big scary people walking around with gloves and wrenches and electricity is involved. And it's, you know, if if you're coming at it having not really, even if you've shot for video for years and years and years, sometimes folks don't develop their skills in lighting as quickly. Because um, there's a lot to learn, and and in trying to sort of diffuse the apprehension, I start with this idea of just just grab one light and don't worry about whether or not it's a flashlight, or a desk lamp, or a clip light, or a work light like you can pick up from a hardware store, or an actual professional theatrical lighting unit that you know you may see on a like behind the scenes right on a movie set or a TV situation, and it doesn't matter if it's LED, it doesn't matter if it's you know, regular kind of life. Just play. Just start playing with one person. Get your best friend, buy him lunch, you know, sit him down in your kitchen for a day. Don't move the camera. I would say frame him up in like a medium or a medium close-up, right? And and just roll different clips with your one lighting unit, whether, and again, it doesn't matter how crude it is or how sophisticated it is, because you're really talking about changing the angle, changing the brightness, changing the distance away from the subject, you know, putting it directly behind them and trying to create a silhouette, putting it underneath them and making it look like a scary, kind of like a campfire angle, and just play. What is it? How does it affect the shadows? How does it affect their, um, you know, the overall uh, sort of way you're capturing them? Is it very flattering to them, or is it not so flattering? You know, do some things that are unexpected. I have students now who are lighting their final projects by bouncing all the light. In other words, the light is yes. never pointed at the scene. They're bouncing it off of this white wall because they decided that it looked a little softer and a little more gentle if they kind of bounced the light and, and made it kind of less direct and harsh. So how do you learn all that if you don't study it for years and years? You just play, I think, you is just the idea. Play with. So, yes, and, and 
don't be afraid of shadows. I think shadows are actually, especially if you're talking about film, um, are, are a lot of times your friend. You know, creating shadows that sort of can bring about a sense of mystery in a scene or mask the intentions of a character, you know, maybe a devious kind of character. Or just set a mood. I mean, shadows create moods, right? I mean, that's why sunsets are sunsets. You know what I mean? Because they're not, yes. they look different than high noon, right? So yes. that's kind of my, that's my big uh, encouragement to, the, to those newcomers, those who are stumbling through it. Just get a light and, and just play with the distance, play with the angles. You know what I mean? It's just footage. I mean, it's not precious. You can always delete it. You don't have to post it. You know, there's also this feeling of like, oh, my God, I've got to post everything. No, you don't have to. You don't have to post. I've got a drawer full of tapes I'll never show anybody because it was practice, right? right? So it's that same sort of idea of just, just, just getting um, loose with it and playing with it. And I think the way to start is with one lighting unit. And then you can kind of build onto it later. Well, we shoot here I, uh, for you too, Mike. A uh, camera person is uh, is named Basil, and he is just. He came in, and I said, "Listen, I have all these lights." No, he said, "We don't need them, Carol. Wait a minute. What are you going to use? The sunlight. We're going to shoot you right here by the window, and open the window, and the light will come in." But that's not enough light, I said. He said, "Watch," and he took out a bounce board. And bounced it right onto my face, and voila, perfect lighting. You would have, I mean, I've seen people take hours to set up lights to achieve what he did <laughs> in 20 minutes, and that is because he knows <laughs> and he knows the light. It's the I think light he's my new favorite. Face. He's my new favorite videographer, without a doubt, because he's got exactly that right approach, which is like, hey, we don't have the hugest, most ginormous budget in the world, or we don't have 12 to 30 people on our grip electric crew but we still need to make you look the best we can and it's it's you know it's one of those things that like normally people would spend three hours lighting it but he came, he sort of came at it with this idea of like well you know what if it works i always tell my students if it works to give you the results you want in the frame and nothing is on fire and nothing, nothing's broken and no one's injured, then it counts. If it looks the way you need it to look, then it counts. You know what I mean? Yes, exactly. Well, <laughs> let's go to bouncing through black and another trick in the wall. Two quick tricks. <clears throat> these, are, these, are, yeah, these are kind of fun and quick, and you can do them in two seconds. Uh, ways to kind of get the camera and getting your subject to move. So you've got an inside, you've got an outside shot, right, an interior, exterior, or you've just got part one and part two different scenes and you don't really know how to connect them and you just don't want to do a, a cut or a fade to black or a crossfade that you've seen a bazillion times. These are two quick ways that cost zero money that can be done in camera to, to sort of make those two, that transitions happen. So bouncing through black is, is driven by the person moving. So if you start in like a medium, which is like a waist and up, and they and the person walks literally walks right up physically to the camera. Make sure you got a good you know good hold on your tripod, and they should cover the lens with their body entirely. So you end up with black, and I would roll for a few seconds longer, and then hit cut, and then you do the opposite. In your next location, they start with their with with their body blocking the entire lens again. Roll for a few seconds of black, and then they just walk forward and stop in the framing you want. And as you cut those two pieces together, 
in your editing software, it looks like they walk up to the camera lens and bounce right through and magically sort of appear in a different place. Oh, and it doesn't call. Hey. Yeah, it doesn't call too much attention to itself. It's not. If you do it elegantly and you get the timing right when you edit them, it's it's just a very simple, but unexpected and kind of um, kind of interesting way to get from scene A to scene B, right? Yeah. And similarly, if you the the other the the one that I call another trick in the wall, because I, I like to, you know, I'm a pretty punny guy with uh, my with my chapter titles, is uh, is. It, Pretty much exactly the same thing, except you're in this in this instance you're moving the camera. So picture a right to left camera motion. We would call that tracking or trucking professionally, where the camera is sliding. And you can do that with a shopping cart or a rolling office chair or any number of. You can do it with one of those wheeled carts you get at a at a kitchen store, right? That has your you know kitchen supplies in it. You move the toaster and the and the knife rack, and you can sort of turn it into a, a dolly. And the person is staying still now, the person in the shot. And you just slide off to the side. And when the camera gets almost almost done with them in the shot, you should come up to like a door frame or a bookcase or you can even just use a, um, like a black piece of foam uh, panel, like a foam core poster board kind of thing you get at the art store or at the drugstore. Drug and you black the lens out. So it almost looks like the camera's moving into the wall. And then you repeat that, again, going right to left, but this time the whatever's blocking it kind of moves off to the right. So when you cut those two together, it looks like the camera magically went through a wall and came out in a totally different location. Oh, that's It costs you one. about $3 <laughs> to do it. Wow. And, yeah, wow. I don't know. There's a show called, um, I forget what, I want to say I forget what network it's called. Oh, can I mention like a like a TV show without having sure. to pay extra to the lawyers? Um, so if you think it's a, I think it's a show called Cities of the Underground, and it's um, it's like a History Channel or Discovery Channel style show. And the guy goes and finds like he'll go to ancient Rome, and then he'll explore all the caverns and tunnels and whatnot from ancient societies that were built you know, centuries ago, and they always do this trick, and they just do it vertically. They start above ground, and they start a camera move going down, and and they block it out with you, it's probably just a piece of black foam core or like a black notebook or something. And then they go down, they take all the camera gear apart, they go downstairs, and they repeat the same motion. And when they cut it together, it looks like the camera's literally traveling through the earth down into the tunnel, and it uh-huh. gets me every time. I love it. I love it. Oh, I think that's fun. Uh, well, honestly, I believe your book should be sold in places where cameras are sold, like Costco, Sam's Club, Amazon. Wherever the camera is, they should have the, uh, the option to get your book. It's not only the content, but the way it's laid out for our audience is usually has the information on the left side and pictures on the right side so that you can't go wrong. You've got a visual as well as a written piece of information, whichever way you like to learn. It's available. So all those Costco reps and all the Best Buy reps, all you guys just get a hold of me on my website and we'll figure out a way to get the book into your stores. That's you're so kind to me. I appreciate it so much. Um, you know, I, I had some I had some really great support, you know, both from my teachers in film school but also, you know, colleagues of mine who were other filmmakers. There was a kid named David who I lived with for a couple of years who taught me more than I could ever thank him for with some of these tricks are derived from things that he came up with. Others are sort of classic, you know, things that I learned 
on set when I was kind of a newbie on set, and I've got those people to thank, and the folks who posed for my photographs in the book were all incredibly patient with me so that we could get all this information out to your listeners and to these new videographers and these YouTubers out there. Exactly. All right, now we're going to go to Section 5 uh, of Conquering YouTube and <laughs> go to Tip 53, which is buy a nose. Head buy a nose. Head. Buy a nose. Um <laughs> More more puns. This one's from the from the horse track, I guess. So this is a super simple one, and it and it I don't know how well I can describe it over over your broadcast, but it's basically um, the idea that you're not going to crowd the people who are in your shots, so their nose isn't up against the side of the of the image. You know, we shoot in rectangles, right? And that's been true going all the way back to portrait painting and early theater and some of these early mediums that are visual all the way up through, doesn't matter if you're shooting 4K or on your iPhone, you're still dealing with putting the human form in a rectangle. And, and if you just picture, you know, kind of like a head and shoulders image of someone, if they're looking off to the right of your frame, in other words, to their left, and you frame them all the way on that side, it starts to kind of crowd them up a little bit if their nose is right on the edge of that rectangle. But if you flip it, and, and move more to the right and give them space to look into, it's a lot more pleasing and it's a lot more uh, sort of flattering for them, certainly. And the same is kind of true for headspace. If they're way down kind of in the bottom of your rectangle, it sort of looks like they're, you know, it's almost like when you're trying to talk to somebody who's in the pool, right? And they're, 90% of them's underwater. It's a little odd, right? So yes. it's that same sort of idea that you want to keep their head and their eyes sort of towards the top third of of whatever rectangle it is you're creating, whether it's 16 by 9 or 133 or whatever. It's just kind of giving a, the right kind of room for people um, to fit and, and to look their best, right, in your shots. Ideally, that's yeah. what you're going for, right? right? <laughs> yeah, you do, yes. And those are, you think those are simple things, but uh, you have so much to n know when you, before you hit that on switch on your camera, that that's one of the most important ones, how you frame the shot, it's the lighting, yeah. how you, and, and then it's all your manual settings where you really make someone look good. That's what it's all about. Yeah, and, 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 I, and I think I tried to give... Um, the book, and this is another thing I have to thank. You know, Ken Lee's birthday is today, by the way. We should give him a shout-out, right? Oh, yes. So, happy birthday, Ken. Thank you, Ken, for encouraging me to keep the book in a almost an a la carte style. So, in other words, if you've never, if you just kind of fell from another planet one day and, and were handed a video camera, you could start on, on Chapter 1 and work your way all the way up. But if you've done a little bit of work or you've made a couple of, you know, goofy films with your friends, but you want them to be better, or you did something for a class history project, but you know it could be better, you could jump in at different sections and sort of just learn that one part. If that, you know, especially for, uh, let's say, the lighting thing. You might already know about framing, and you, might already, you may, may have made a couple of shorts, you know, or done a couple of vlogs on your channel. And you may say, well, oh, I got my, my lighting can be better. You can just go to that section as well. So it's that particular approach that I wanted to bring to people where it's like, yeah, you can start at the beginning or you can jump in at number 70 and go from there. Okay, that's very true. Now let's go to the Ken Burns uh, calling tricks for smoothly shooting photos. This is really important. I tell you what, you know, I, 
I'm a huge admirer of the documentary work. That, I mean, Ken Burns really took documentary in, into a whole new realm, right? I mean, he was a game changer with all the work he did on the Civil War documentaries and the baseball docs and the jazz um, series. They just gorgeous stuff. And one of the things he's known for is sort of really slow, elegant explorations of photos, right? Because you, you've, you're limited in that, especially the Civil War part, right? You're limited with, you're not going to do any interviews. There's nobody left. <laughs> so you're looking at these images, and yet you're also talking about one of the crazy ages of early photography, and those kind of shocking images still hold a lot of value. And his real contribution was finding this way to move the camera. And he, de- he and his team developed these crazy, expensive, intricate mechanisms for, like, being able to take a video camera and, and drift it around in still imagery and develop interesting shots. You don't have that machine, and you can't afford it, right? But you want to do a piece on all your family photos, right, for everybody's holiday present this year. Or you want to do, for your history project, something a little more along those lines. And my suggestion is always stop moving the camera and move the picture, right? And even if it's a smaller image, like a 5 by 7 or something that might feel difficult, uh, my suggestion is always if you can't shoot down, if you can't shoot straight down because you don't have the right kind of equipment, just put your normal tripod in the air and tack, tack the photo to a wall, and you can move it that way. Or you could, uh, like, you know, the sticky kind of stuff you get in an arts supply store that doesn't damage photos. Um, it's like a, that back, you put it on the back. You know what I'm talking about? You put that on there, put it on, a, put it on a big piece of black poster board, and then just gently move the poster board, right? So you've got your video camera pointed at the wall. You've got the poster board with your photograph that you're trying to record. You, you're in probably a pretty tight framing, right? You usually don't want to see the edges. And you just gently slide the whole poster board on the wall, and that actually ends up replicating different camera moves. And it takes a second to kind of get the idea of it. Um, Sometimes it helps to run the AV cable out to, like, your TV so you can see what results you're getting uh, if you can't see them on the little, you know, the pop-out screen on the camera. But that's a great way to do flat work if you're doing posters or pictures, anything like that. to bring, a, again, a little, so you're not doing it handheld, it's not sloppy and bouncing all over the place, and it's a smoother, more elegant kind of thing that's like an ode to the to that whole Ken Burns style. Wow, that's a good tip. I like that. I well, think, conquering YouTube, you get into sound, so let's cover the L&J sound lead uh, and explain this, how to set them up and use them to advance your story and the tension in the story. So sound, I think I'm right in saying sound is kind of the other big mystery area, right? Like people don't have, they, you know, they're not spending, well, some people are, but not everyone who's doing this kind of work is spending four years studying audio design, right, at, at one of the better universities. So it, it, it can, and there's a lot of equipment, a lot of weird names, and what mic do I buy, and, and all that. So there's a lot of ways that sound can be, I guess, intimidating. Um but again, just like all these other elements, if you just sort of slowly break it down and work your way through it, there's some simple techniques um, that can improve your filmmaking. Uh, the L&J thing um, is, is sort of a classic editing technique where you're using sound uh, to sort of either lag behind or anticipate the cut. So in other words, uh, one way to think about it is, let's say, you have a, let's say you're doing a dramatic scene 
and there's a ambulance, right? And so you have the shot of the ambulance outdoors and the siren noise. And then the next shot, you're inside somewhere, and you're cutting to a character who doesn't know that this horrible news has happened. If you build an L edit, what's going to, it's called L and J because of the way that the sound looks on your editing timeline, sort of makes that shape, that bent corner sort of shape. If you let the ambulance sound kind of continue on under the next scene, now you've got this kind of discordant but interesting blend of image and sound. So you're seeing the character who doesn't know that there's been this, let's say it was a car accident, and yet you're hearing the ambulance sound sort of come underneath that shot. And, it, and you're right, it builds a lot of tension. And then the reverse can also be true, right? So that's called a sound uh, follow, where it follows under. And then sound lead is where you hear the sound of what's coming, and we and you don't show them the, the image yet. And it sort of forms that reverse corner, or J, shape on the timeline. So you might hear something really dramatic, and then not show the viewer what's causing that sound until you cut to it. That, that kind of makes sense. It's a way of sort of stretching out either after the fact or before the fact what the sound is doing before you or after you cut away from the image. Okay. Wow. That's <laughs> I hope that was clear. I don't know. Raise your I, I like it. Podcast the, land if you didn't understand it. Lead. I like I'll it sometimes it when you're at one scene, maybe <laughs> in someone's bedroom, and then all of a sudden you hear a siren wailing, and then the next you cut, and there you are. You're at the scene. Sure. Yeah. That's fun. And if you, if you, once you kind of know about that technique, I mean, you see it all the time, and you see it for um, – Sometimes you see it like with flashbacks, right? You'll hear the flashback to the combat that the, the character had suffered through years before, and you'll hear the sounds of the combat, and then they'll do like a, there's like a whooshing sound sometimes they'll add, and all of a sudden you're seeing what happened, you know, however many years ago. Or for happy reasons, you'll hear the sound of a birthday party or a marching band in a, in a Fourth of July parade or something, right? It's just, it, it's just that idea of like finding an interesting way to sort of tease the audience right into what's coming, and then all of a sudden you're you're there. Very dramatic. Very dramatic. It's great. Okay, this is going to be our last tip. This is called Get Wild. It's recording room tone, wild tracks, ambient sound on location, and additional dialogue. So, again, without without worrying about, like, what microphone you have or, you know, making sure it's plugged into the right, you know, part of your camera. Let's assume you've gotten comfortable with all those things, and, and, and I talk about them in some other chapters, but you're on location or you're at the, the scene where you're filming either, it doesn't matter if it's documentary, news, or dramatic, you know, narrative-style stuff, or a music video for that matter. Room tone, wild tracks, ambience, all those kind of things. Uh, while you've got the gear, while you've got the actors there or the subjects, right, the talent, get these things recorded. And and I always try to schedule it in. Uh, it, it's just as critical as developing something like storyboards, right? It's planning out your, your day. Room tone, just quickly, is literally 30 seconds of nobody saying anything but the room itself. And what it's going to do is uh, pick up things like the air compressor out in the street or the air conditioner that's running next door or the refrigerator or the hum of the fan in the, you know, the desk fan in the next room. It's all those little tones. 
and you'll you use it like audio paste later on when you're editing because you're going to cut away from something and cut to something else, or maybe the actor and the or the one of your I don't know one of your grip or electrician sneezed and you got to cut that out, and you just sort of use that room sound to paste in and smooth things out while you're editing. Super useful. Um, wild tracks are like sort of unexpected things um, or things that aren't connected to what you're seeing in that image, like screams or background sounds, right, um, or things that are in the script, maybe. You know, somebody shouts, look out. Right, you know, you don't have to bring an actor back ten days later at a different place and get the microphone out again. Just have them do it that day, right, right there when when they're when they're available. Um, the other big one that actually I think is a lot of fun is 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 the sort of ambient stuff when you're in your location, right, and it's the creepy old house and you're shooting your horror movie after you know finally getting all the right actors and budget and makeup, and you realize that the door you know, leading downstairs to the basement actually does make a squeaky old sound. Well, you can go to any number, you know, of websites and get the sound effect, but it's the same sound effect that everyone else has, right? But that yeah. day, that weather, you know, and that humidity level and that that particular person on your crew moving the door, it's going to squeak differently than any other door ever. So record five or six of the squeaks and give that stuff to your editor. It's like it's kind of like grocery shopping, you know. It's like go get the best stuff, and the chef will decide where to put it in the stew. You know what I mean? Right. Well done. <laughs> I hope that this makes is sense. so much fun. Thank you, Jay. I've learned an awful lot through you, and and your book <clears throat> will be on my shelf forever because I don't care how much you know about shooting. This is a great way to say, well, I've got a, something I've never had to deal with before. How did Jay handle it? And you can take the book down and look it up. That's mm-hmm. great. Well, it's a real pleasure, and I'm I'm super thrilled and honored to spend some time with you, and, and I appreciate all the accolades. I hope your listeners enjoyed it and maybe learned a little something. Um, if they want to reach out to me, on, I'm all over Twitter, and I have um, a contact form on my webpage if they have a question about a video shoot or if they're a high school class that wants to do a Skype session with me. I'm super, super excited to, to try to set that up for you. And um, that's jmilestv.com is the website, letter J, Miles TV, which is also my Twitter and my YouTube channel and all those fun things. It's just J, M-I-L-E-S. Letter J, yeah. Letter J, M-I-L-E-S, T like Tom, V like Victor. That's on the Twitter machine and on the Internet. And you can, <laughs> you can give me a holler, and I'll, I'll look forward to talking to all your listeners. Great, and thank you very much for joining us, and best of luck with your book, and thank you, Claire, for a lovely introduction and show today. Great. I thoroughly enjoyed having you on the show, Jay. Thank you very much. Thank you both very much. It was a real pleasure. Okay, take care. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Be well. Be well. Now, in its second edition, Carol Dean's popular book, The Art of Film Funding, has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls. Learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer. How to make an ask for money. Create your story structure and your trailer. Legal advice, fair use, successful crowdfunding, how to ask for music rights, 
and what insurance you can't shoot without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com. I want to remind our listeners that David Raiklin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions. If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. That's David, R-A-I-K-L-E-N dot com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to the Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at fromtheheartproductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone.